Let me ask you guys a question to start things off. Do you want to follow Jesus? Thank you, man. Okay, let's pray. Uh, no, really, think, please think about this for a minute. Like, really think. Do you want to follow Jesus? I'm not asking if you think he's cool or you like some of the things that he says. Do you actually want to follow him? Do you want to take his life as an example for your own and become more like Jesus? Do you want to follow Jesus like that? And if you say yes, if there's any inkling in you that goes, I think I might, I think I do, what do you think he might say in response to that? Jesus, I want to follow you. What's the first thing that comes to your mind? I know there are times that Jesus says something like this, and I think we probably think about this sort of thing often. He would say, come to me. Follow me. We might think, well, when I say, Jesus, I want to follow you, of course that's what he's looking for, right? So he's going to say, come on. But there are other times, and we're going to talk about these, one of these times tonight. Uh, and I, I, my suspicion is that we don't think about these too often. But where Jesus doesn't actually say immediately, then come follow me, where he instead says, are you sure? Like, are you sure that you want to follow me? Do you have any idea what you're getting into? Do you really want all that's required in this? Do you really want to follow Jesus? Do you know that Jesus actually warns us about himself? This is not a salesman who's not telling you all of the honest truths about the wares that he has. He actually warns you. Are you sure that you want to be a disciple of me? I think tonight my hope is that you would consider yourself warned. And that you would still risk your entire life on the dare that Jesus actually has for you and for me the only life that's worth living at all. It's a big claim. We'll see how it goes. Let's pray. Father, um, in the next little bit, I ask that you would anoint my words. Let the things, God, that I speak, um, let them be of you. Let them reek of truth and of power. God, would you anoint the ears, the minds, the hearts, the, every single person in this room that we would, we would understand and know to some degree uh, the call that you have on our lives, that we would have um, clarity about the fact that we are all going to die someday and that none of us can actually save ourselves. Would you make, I guess, God, what I'm asking is would you make the, uh, the decisions, the choices, the real truth of what life is about, would you make it known tonight in our hearts? And um, what, what we're talking about tonight is hard, and it's not safe. I pray that it would be good. In your son's name, we must pray these things. Um, as we all semester have been uh, looking at the kingdom of God. So we're discovering this whole semester is talking about this sort of thing, characteristics of the kingdom. Well, tonight um, I particularly want to talk about a characteristic, and I would say the defining characteristic of the people of the kingdom of God. If you see the kingdom of God alive in the world today, the very people who live under the rule of that king, what do they look like? 
as we see the kingdom of God in and through the lives of the son and daughters of the king, what do we see? This is important, I think, because primarily the, the, the clearest picture of the kingdom that we ever get in all of the world, in all of history, it's the clearest picture ever, is actually Jesus Christ himself. Second to that, what God is doing is primarily giving the world a picture of his kingdom through his disciples, through Jesus' disciples. So I think it's imperative, if, if we can understand the kingdom most clearly right now through the disciples of Jesus, what do they look like? What do, peop- like, what do people of Jesus look like? Does anybody have an idea? What do you think is the central mark of these people? What distinguishes the people of God? How will people know that these are disciples of Jesus? Anybody? Love. Love. Yes, it's a many splendid thing. I'm going to sing again this week. Um, love, absolutely. But it is not a generic thing. Jesus doesn't say, in John chapter 13, Jesus says, they will know, the world will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. Yes, this is the distinguishing mark of a follower of Jesus. This is how people know it. But it is not generic. It is very specific. He commanded them specifically to love like him, like, like, him, like he has loved them. And how did Jesus love them? He gave his life for them. And to hammer that point home, in the same conversation, just a little bit later, he defines love and says, greater love has no one than this than that he lays down his life for his friend. Love is not something generic. So you see, that's not cement, sentimental feelings, but actually a dying of self. Using the transitive property, if the people of God's kingdom are supposed to be defined and characterized by love, and it's supposed to be love like Jesus. What you've got is the people of God's kingdom are defined most specifically by the fact that they keep dying, that they keep giving up their very lives and laying down their very lives. Do you want this to be your defining characteristic? Let me ask you again. Do you want to follow Jesus? I'm going to put up Luke. Chapter 9, verse 23. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Jesus has said something like this six times in the Gospels. This is wildly common for Jesus. He says this a lot. If anyone wants to follow me, and check it, if anyone wants to follow me, this is not how Jesus generally approaches outsiders, people who first encounter him and know nothing about him. He often comes in with words of healing and life and affirmation and and, and reaches them in places where they feel alone and says, you're not alone, I am with you here. But the moment somebody says, I'd like to follow you, I'd like to become like you, he begins to say something like this. Oh, well, if you want to follow me, well, then you must deny yourself. You must take up your cross, and then you must follow me. And the context of this passage might be a little helpful for you. Um, right before this, uh, Jesus had just said, um, and this is a similar part where, where very famously Peter, um, who started kind of the whole church, gets denied um, by Jesus, and Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. And the reason Peter says that to Jesus is because Jesus just got done telling Peter, guys, and the rest of the disciples, guys, here's what's going to happen. I am going to suffer, I'm going to be rejected, I'm going to die, and then I'm going to be resurrected, and then the Son of Man will be in glory. But all of these things must take place. Peter does not like that. 
And he says, Jesus, this cannot be. We don't want this to happen. And Jesus pushes against Peter, rejects the temptation, I think, that, that Peter was offering Jesus for another way. And Jesus comes after him with this. If you want to follow me, you must deny yourself. Take up your cross, then follow me. And I think this is encouraging. Number one, it's a little encouraging for me because uh, he doesn't prescribe something for us that he didn't do himself, but it, this just makes sense with any form of discipleship, right? Like, if I want to be like you, then I'm going to do the things you do. And so if we want to be like Jesus, then we need to do the things that Jesus did. And so to the degree uh, that I want to be like him, if Jesus suffered to the degree that I want to be like him, I must suffer. If Jesus died and gave up his life to the degree that it makes sense for me to be like him in this sort of way, I too must die. Resurrection and glory, yes, this is a part of the story. Yes. But this is often the stuff that's pushed back. This is the stuff we are awaiting. What does it look like right now in God's kingdom? Are there images of resurrection? Are there tastes of glory? Absolutely. But those come across more like whispers, if I'm really honest. What the people of God look like most now is decision, suffering, rejection, and death. This is not something peripheral. This is one of the most central claims of Jesus Christ about discipleship. This is very, very central. How often, Christian, do you think of this? How often in your life, when people ask you questions about your relationship with God or you talk about Christianity and what it means to you, how often do you think of self-denial, of laying down my life? What does it mean for me to follow Jesus? I'll tell you what it means. It looks like a lot of dying. It looks like my entire life being laid down for the sake of others particularly in Christ Jesus. How often do you think of this? And at this point, I'm a little stuck because I want nothing more right now than to convince you. I want to encourage you. I want to challenge you. I want to inspire you. I want to do all these things for you to tell you that this is good. The problem is how can I do that when you are the very thing which needs to be denied? You see my trick? What am I supposed to do? How can I convince you when you are the very thing that needs to be denied? It's a tough part for me tonight. So, instead of trying to appeal to you, I'm going to do something else. I'm going to ask you to come with me, particularly to come with Jesus, and die. I'm going to try to make known to you the cost of following Jesus using his very words, And then I'm going to challenge you to make the decision that you need to make, or rather that you are making, or will ultimately make one way or the other. What is the cost of following Jesus? And and this is a decision that you must make. I'm not saying that as an imperative, like I can somehow force this upon you. I promise with your life you're going to make this decision. Do you actually want to follow Jesus? Let's read Luke 14. Now great crowds accompanied him, that's Jesus, and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, and you see this is going to get very difficult, um, hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. 
Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate? whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So, therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Very intense passage. If you uh, wouldn't mind keeping the beginning of that up and just kind of walking with me as I read it, um, I'd like people to be able to see it. That'd be great. I'm just going to walk through this a little bit and tell you guys what I think Jesus is getting at here. First, I want you to notice there were great crowds accompanying Jesus. Great crowds. Massive amounts of people following him. And what did Jesus do? He confronted them. Why? Why would Jesus confront people who are excited to be around him? Does that surprise you at all? I mean, all of these people around him. And he confronts them. I would submit to you that Jesus doesn't want fans. He doesn't really care about fans. Do you realize how many times thousands of people were hearing Jesus' teachings? Thousands upon thousands of people. Groups of hundreds, 5,000, 4,000, dozens, multitudes, in the middle of cities and synagogues, on streets, on mountainsides, on the shores of lakes. Tons of crowds. Do you think Jesus wants fans? Do you think he wants to fill a stadium with people who clap for Jesus? Is that really what he's about? If you think he wants fans, then any sort of cost to follow him doesn't make any sense. If that's what Jesus is about. If all he's about is an audience, it doesn't make any sense. I don't think he wants fans. I don't think he wants adoring servants. I don't think he wants obedient slaves. I don't think he wants doting peons. I don't think he wants people just walking around him telling him how great he is all day. In all of what I just said, are there pieces of those things that might be great for somebody who is so exceptional? Huge understatement. Yes. But is this really what Jesus is about? Is this why he came? So he could increase his fan base. He can get more likes and friends. Is that what it's about? I don't think so. I think he wants brothers and sisters. I think he wants disciples. I think he wants people who actually live like him. And so he turns to these people, this great crowd, who begin to lean in because they like some of the other stuff that he's saying. And Jesus has a way of doing this. He says these things that people like to hear, and I think that they're true. But when they begin to walk with him, lean in a little bit, listen a little harder, and when everybody else goes away, he begins to say some things that are really difficult. To such a degree that people often then go, this is too hard for me. Sorry. And again, I will tell you, he is not some tricky salesman. He turns to the great crowds that are accompanying him and he says, if you really want to follow me, consider the cost. If you want to be one of those disciples... If you want to truly follow him, here's something you must do. You must hate your own father, your own mother, 
your own sister, your own brother, your wife, your kids, even your very self. In other words, everything that's important to you. It's very hard, you guys, and I need to be very clear with you about a couple of things. First of all, this is one of the hardest things Jesus has ever said in terms of like uh, difficult, hard to wrap our minds around, one of the most offensive things that Jesus has ever said. It gets right in us. I was even talking with some people earlier today about how it's, it's, it's strange to me, and I'm not going to go into this too much, but how I think most of us even get, because of the way it's worded, we probably ought to be most offended by the fact that we need to hate our own lives. But we probably are more offended by the fact that I've got to hate somebody else. I mean, it just doesn't even make sense what he's saying. It's so stark. People try to argue that what Jesus means really is just love people a little bit less than Jesus. But that's not what he said. There's a Greek word for that. I don't know what it is. But there is a Greek word for that. I'm, actually, I'm not making it up. I promise it is. I just don't know it. Uh, it just sounded like I was making that up. Um, but there really is. But he didn't use that. He actually specifically used the word that means hate. This is hard. And I want to start by saying this. And I think this is a wonderful quote. Uh, this isn't intended to be a C.S. Lewis sermon. But in a commentary on this, C.S. Lewis made the comment where he said, the hard things of Jesus, if they are to be wholesome, they must remain hard. They must remain difficult. If this is going to be wholesome, it must remain difficult. If I'm reading this, if you're reading this, anyone who hates his own father and mother, like you've got to do these things, if you read that and you go, got it, you have completely missed this. If you think this is easy, then you are something more of a devil than a Jesus, okay? <laughs> like, please do not be this way. Jesus is not calling you to go around loathing everybody. This is, though, a very hard thing that we must take seriously. And I want it to remain that way, so I'm actually purposefully not going to try and make this easy because, first of all, I think that would be a horrible exegesis. Um, I think that would be not very caring for you because I think it is very difficult. When Jesus said this, it was intended to shock. So, but I want to say something that I think will help a lot in understanding what he means. This is primarily a passage about discipleship, right? These are people who want to follow him. He's asking the question, if you want to follow me, if you want to be like me, then this. The, the, the umbrella within which this sits is a conversation about discipleship. This isn't generic. This isn't a, a applied to every single conversation in life. Jesus doesn't say this about everything. This is particularly a conversation to people who are going, Jesus, I want to follow you. If I could use another word, which I think might help understand some of what he's getting at. He's talking about allegiance. This is really what discipleship is anyway, right? A sort of allegiance that I end up becoming a part of the very thing that I am following. And in the face of that, you'll see that this is a very common word. Jesus uses this word hate a number of times in the New Testament. And almost every time in the Gospels that he uses this word, it's referring to, to entities or people who require obedience and allegiance. The, the most famous one of all is when Jesus talks about love and money, or, or God and money. You cannot serve two masters. You can only serve God or money. You must love one and hate the other, Jesus says. And I think that this is very wise. It is impossible for any of us in this room to ever have two masters. It's just impossible. If you are doubting that at all, it's only because you misunderstand what I mean by master. I mean somebody whom you identify with. It's whom you get your identity from. It, it, it denotes your purpose and who you are becoming. 
Whatever that is, anything that vies against that, anything that challenges that, I promise you hate. If you are a casual fan, an onlooker, somebody who just appreciates baseball, perhaps you can like every baseball team. But if you really are a devoted fan of the Yankees, it's impossible for you to like the Red Sox. You actually can't. If you really like the Tennessee Vols, you can't like any other team in the SEC. Otherwise, you're not really a disciple. It's just, by definition, you guys, I mean, this is really, we understand this all across the board. I know that's sports, but in everything in life. Try telling, two, sit down two of your friends. Sit down two of them. Sit them in two chairs in front of you and look at one and say, you are my f- best friend. And then look to the next one and say, you are my best friend. And say, I really, I share this. And watch them. Just watch what happens. I promise. It doesn't make sense. You must, and they will tell you this. "Uh Uh-uh, me or her. Me or him. It's going to be that conversation, even if they don't say it out loud. Like, if you are devoted to something, you cannot be devoted to something else by the very definition of the word devoted. This conversation that Jesus is having is about devotion. It's about discipleship. It's about allegiance. What he is talking about is that when there is a struggle between two masters, you can only love one and hate the other. I saw this, um, and and actually, I mean, I I think probably a pretty, uh, it's a horrible word for it, but I don't know what else to say, a perfect way in relationship to this passage of Scripture. My father married a woman, I was married to her for 22 years, and I love her dearly. Um, She's incredible. She raised me for about six years. And, but uh, my dad was um, a follower of Jesus, loved Jesus, was in, uh, I don't know how you would define it externally, but seemed to have the trappings of somebody who was sold out or something. I mean, he did like traveling things and was in Bible studies and whatever you did in the 70s, I suppose, uh, for Jesus. Um, but by all accounts, he really loved Jesus. And uh, about 10 years into his marriage, um, he got into a conversation with my grandmother. And my grandmother asked him, Craig, why don't you follow Jesus? Why don't you go to church? Why don't you talk to the kids about Jesus more? And he said, and I kid you not, he said, Donna, I have to choose between my wife and God. And if I choose God, my wife will leave me. So he chose her. And the day my dad got divorced, well, the second day after he got divorced, he began to have conversations about God that he hadn't had in 22 years. This is real. Like, it's real. This isn't fake. You can only have one master. When Jesus is talking about hating something, He's talking about the fact, quite frankly, if you don't follow Jesus and you follow something else, you will hate Jesus. This is a matter of fact. You can only have one master. If you want to follow me, then everything else you must be willing to hate. And by everything else, I mean specifically everything that's demanding your allegiance, everything that's demanding your discipleship, everything that's demanding your obedience. When you can only serve one, you hate the demand of allegiance from another. Remember, this is very difficult. I said this is very hard. Just because I said that, I don't think it makes it easy. This is supposed to shock people. These people wanted to follow Jesus and were closing in and the great crowds were accompanying him and leaning in on these conversations and he says something that's intended to shock them and I think he's trying to shock them into this realization that the things that are innocent and natural in your life 
that seem just like they're there and you like them, quite often these things are vying for your life. They are demanding your allegiance and obedience, your family, your romances, your jobs, your giftedness, your intelligence, your, your habits. These things are not so innocent as you might think. Quite often, many of these things are going to be asking for you to make them master. But if we follow Jesus, we actually must be in hateful opposition to any and all authorities which demand our discipleship. Most especially, ourselves. And if you think that's hard, it gets harder. Jesus then asks us to bear our crosses. This is absolutely intense and offensive once more. Maybe not to us because we, we see crosses like this and, and it looks like decoration. Holy crap. A cross looks like decoration. I don't know how many people have died on a cross, but can you imagine in 2,000 years people decorating their churches with electric chairs and nooses? This is intense. When Jesus said this, these people probably had seen often People hanging on crosses and suffocating to their death. This is intense. And when he's talking about picking up and bearing your crosses, some of you know this coming from Easter services and stuff, it was quite often that somebody, a criminal who was going to die on a cross, had to carry the cross beam through the city. It was a shameful thing before they went to their death. And Jesus is saying, carry your cross. I think what this means is that people who follow Jesus are ever and always on their way to death. I don't think it's a sort of suffering or season. For example, I have horrendous allergies. I don't think my allergies are my cross to bear in life. I don't think when I get sick or my wife and I go through financial hardship or one of our kids has something wrong happen to them or, or we, I don't get like a job that I really want or so, something bad happens, I don't think that it's appropriate for me to apply this to that particular thing and go, well, this is what Jesus means. I live my life normally, and when bad things happen, I just kind of bear my burdens. I don't think that's what he's talking about. We do not simply deny sins or hardship. We deny self. This is the definition of what it looks like to love others. I deny myself. I lay down my life for the sake of others. It's also not something passive. Take up your cross. Again, we don't live our lives just going about our business and when hardship comes or when it seems necessary to kind of like go, oh, well, I guess I need to lay this down. No, the people of God are actively, actively ever and always on their way to death. This is very intense. Following Jesus means, in other words, renouncing every form of allegiance denying even yourself and actively participating in laying down your life. That's it. That's the cost of following Jesus. It will cost you your allegiance and your life. It will, quite frankly, cost you everything. And if that isn't heavy enough, I think then Jesus asks us to take a long look at it in this passage. <laughs> so not only does he define cost for us as something that, quite frankly, is everything, but then he doesn't go, but I, I know, but I promise it's going to be great. Just, just don't even think about it. Just put it aside. And come on, man. It's gonna, here's all the great stuff. He then says this, and let's, uh, let me read it again. He then says this, 
Which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. I immediately think of the story of Christianity and people's faith a lot when I hear this story, when I hear this. People begin to ask you questions about why you believe in Jesus, why you follow him. And you begin to talk about all of these things and these promises and these great grand words. But about a third of the way into the conversation, you just can't really figure out what you're supposed to say anymore or do anymore because you haven't really ever counted all of this up. And somebody goes, I don't know if I believe you. And maybe they begin to mock because this tower that you said you could build, this picture of faith, that you promised that you could portray for them, you don't know how to do. The other parable that Jesus often teaches in twin parables, he says, or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20? Do you suppose that Jesus wants people to follow him and just turn off their brains? Is that what it means to be a disciple of Jesus? Is this what it means to have faith? Stop thinking. Just pretend a lot of stuff doesn't matter and imagine a lot of stuff does. But don't be critical. Don't consider. Don't sit down and actually do the math. Don't calculate. Don't really reckon whether this matters. Don't consider whether it's possible. Do you think this is what Jesus really wants? You think he wants people who aren't critical and simply leap to steal a common word? He actually tells us to consider. He does not want disciples who haven't considered what the cost is. The kingdom is intended to be full of people who have made calculated, deliberate decisions. And so, Christians, I will ask you this. What does it cost you to be a disciple of Jesus? What has it cost you to be a disciple of Jesus? If it's genuine, and if you begin to consider it, I think you will find that it has cost you everything. And if you are considering follow Jesus, then let me ask you two questions that are related to these parables. Of the one building a tower, do you have enough to complete it? I'll ask you this, can you afford? Can you afford to follow Jesus? knowing what he's asking and demanding and having some idea of what he might be offering, can you actually afford to give up all of your allegiances in your entire life and follow Jesus? Or to flip the language in the other parable, can you afford to refuse Jesus? Knowing what it's going to cost you to follow him, having some idea of what he might offer in return. Can you afford to refuse following Jesus? And then Jesus says, anyone who wants to follow me must renounce all that he has. You put up Luke 9, 24. This is just continuing the earlier verse. This is, uh, I, I'm just trying to summarize some of what Jesus is getting at in the end of this. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And so we come to this. The decision of yours, this decision of yours, is the most important one you'll ever make. Easy. 
For if you renounce everything, listen to this carefully. If you renounce everything and bet on Jesus, and he's not real, he isn't who he says he is, well then quite frankly, you've lost everything. If you don't follow Jesus, and he is who he says he is, well then, quite frankly, you've lost everything. This is the biggest decision you will ever make. It's the biggest one, and there is a tremendous cost. If you hold on to your life, and you come to find that Jesus is who he says he is, you've lost your entire life. Your life, in either way, it hangs in the balance. It's really important. Like, it's really important. If you weren't important, Jesus wouldn't be talking to you about how much it cost. He wouldn't be offering you what it is you really want. You are so important that he is being starkly and offensively honest. Your life hangs in the balance of your decision about whether or not you want to follow Jesus. But I want to be clear that losing your life this is where it gets a little tricky, right? Losing your life in one way or another really isn't an option. This is a very silly thing that we often walk around with thinking. This isn't a question really of whether or not you're ever going to lose your life. You're, 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 like you're going to. Your life is going to be spent somehow. You are always, at every single moment, investing in something. If we're gonna, and for some reason, it seems appropriate to use financial metaphors and we talk about friendships and life and stuff, so we're going to continue in this. But you're always investing in something. You're always spending your life in some way. Friends, sports, money, jobs, career, identity, body, food, uh, whatever. Uh, critical thought and thinking. I, I don't know what it is. But you are at every single moment, even right now, the grid through which you're applying some of the things I'm saying and planning uh, for, the next, for the next couple of days and tonight. You are choosing to, to, to say to the world, to say to yourself and others, this is how I'm choosing to spend my life. This is what my life is worth, and I will tell you by the way in which I invest it. Every single one of us in this room does this very thing. Not a single one of us doesn't do it. At every single moment of every day, you are declaring that your life is worth something. You are spending it on something. You are investing it somewhere, always. None of us on our deathbed, when asked the question, what did you do with your life? Imagine this. You're 80. You're on your deathbed. Somebody comes up to you and says, what did you do with your life? Not a single one of you will be able to say, I saved it. I mean, think about that. You can't say that. My next, if you actually did say that, my next question will be, well, what did you do for the last 79 point something years? And you will, of course, have an answer. It won't be saving if you say, uh, well, I, I, I never went out. Instead, I did go home and I saved it in the quarter. I can tell you, well, you spent your entire life hiding. That's what you spent your life doing. You invested your life in hiding. If you say, I don't know, I, I, I made a bunch of friends. I was very social. I invested everywhere. I tried to make my life as loud as possible. Well, you invested your life in other people, fine, who are all going to die too. Great. Nobody's going to remember you in 100 years. But, awesome. I don't know if that's better than hiding in and of itself. The trick is, every single one of us will spend our life somewhere, and the thing that we spend it on will ultimately die. None of us can actually save our lives. This is why this is a little silly. 
Because I think when Jesus says, whoever wants to lose his life will actually will save it. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. I, I don't think that this is only a question about Jesus, for example. I don't think it's like, well, you know, Jesus comes along and says, I, I need to lose it and spend it somehow. Nothing else does. No, no, everything does. Every single thing in your life is asking you to. I'm asking you right now to spend your life listening to this text. Every single thing in the world is asking you to spend your life on it. What makes Jesus different than everything else in the world? I will argue, uh, and there's many different ways to word this, one of the most significant things that should give us cause to wonder and hope. Jesus rose from the dead, y'all. It's the only place you can invest where your life still remains. That's it. But that's another sermon. Probably last weekend. You can download those all over the United States, I'm sure. So what are you spending your life on? And let me ask you this, what will be the cost? If you want to follow Jesus, that will particularly cost you everything. Everything. Jesus is not going to say to you, just give me a little, I'll be fine. He's going to ask you for everything. And I know so often the cliche is that we follow Jesus with blind faith. Faith is required for sure. But Jesus is asking us to keep our eyes wide open. Look long and hard at the cost that it will be for you to follow Jesus as you ask this question, do I want to follow him? He wants us to keep our eyes open to the fact that we, the very people of God, would be, would, like Jesus, uh, be willing to suffer and die in the hope that Jesus is who he claims to be. And I think maybe what this helps me realize, maybe more than anything else, and this is amazing, that Jesus did not come to offer you and me some simple, shallow form of peace. He came to offer you glory. Jesus didn't just come to make life easy for us. He came to make us great. He came to make us great. It will cost us everything. I would encourage you to consider the reward. But it will actually cost you everything, and it will feel like that. But he would have you follow him. I will ask you in closing, once again, do you want to follow Jesus? Really? Are you sure? Let me pray for you. Father, I am keenly aware of the fact that um, we cannot begin to think about following you. Sorry, we cannot begin to think of giving up anything unless you are with us. For God, if this is the only life we have, it would be silly to lose it on anything. You must, God, make yourself known to us. You must. You must open eyes. You must soften hearts. You must make yourself known. Because God, if we don't know you, how in the world could we possibly begin to give up anything? God, I know that you, uh, in one level, 
are not safe, that you require this immense cost. That I am, am following no one else, Jesus, but you. And yet somehow in the midst of that, God, I know that this is true. I know that there is a kind of safety that we can find in Jesus that we can find nowhere else. Your spirit, Lord, must work for this to happen. Your spirit must work for us to believe. But God forbid that anybody in this room would follow you without counting the cost, would follow you without considering what it is you have to offer. Would you give them the ability with wide eyes to consider, to look at, to discern all of the things that you would ask of them? And would you help them to believe that if they would actually lose their life in Jesus, well, they would find the life that they're looking for? We need you, God. Uh, Help us and help our unbelief. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.